Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. A year in review, 1977. Start spreading the news. We're back today. It's a brand new episode of Gilded Films Podcast. We got the year in review of 77. And it's me, your good friend Christian. And we got Brett. Say hi. Hello. And we got Anthony. He's back. What's up? All right. That's enough of my scene because royalty <laughs> issues there. But yes, hi, <laughs> we're back with another episode of the Guild of Films podcast. This time we got the year in review, 1977. Uh, I'm Christian, Brett, and Anthony. Actually, thank you so much for coming back and helping us out with this episode again. You got it. This is this this whole episode is it's wrong now. It's blasphemous. I don't care. <laughs> we're just gonna talk. I, I haven't even seen New York, New York in like five years. Now we're just gonna talk about it the whole time. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Well, we'll we'll save New York, New York for for later on. Any other but thoughts we have on throwing it, it? Throwing it back to Brett here as we segue into it. But it's the year in review. Yes. Yeah, it is the interview. We, as always, we each pick two films that we want to go into a little bit further. Um, these, you know, some of these were nominated. Some, I guess one of them had a couple wins. And then there are actually quite a few that did not get any Oscar nominations. So didn't get a whole lot of attention from the Academy. But we'll go through those. Um, and I have got our first one here, which is the big Steven Spielberg epic of that year. It is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And so, you know, coming out the same year as Star Wars, this was another kind of big visual effects, um, a, you know, effort from that year. This was, I think, for a long time and still is often considered one of the just big landmarks for aliens landing on Earth and, and you know, those movies. And so uh, the main character here is Roy Neary, who's played by Richard Dreyfus, our second film from here, him this year. Um, and he is an electrical lineman who is working on a job. And as he's doing this UFO kind of lands over him and, you know, kind of does its thing. And then him, a bunch of other people see, uh, these UFOs up and personal, you know, up close. And so kind of become infatuated with them and what they've just seen. And, um, it's kind of one that, you know, circulates around the area. Um, and so, you know, Richard Dreyfuss, his character, he just becomes so fascinated and kind of obsessed with it that he kind of becomes distant from his family, but he realizes that this is something that's going on with other people too, including Melinda Dillon, uh, who plays a mother in the film whose son is actually abducted by the alien spaceships. And so from there, it's kind of a film about ex 
exploration. They're trying to figure out what all is going on and this government cover up because they obviously know what's happening. They're at Area 51 doing whatever they might be doing. Whereas these two characters are kind of going out and trying to figure out what exactly is going on because it's something that they've experienced and has already deeply impacted their lives. And so um, this film, I, I had seen it before, but I was really young. I, I want to say like even eight or nine. And so I didn't really remember it much at all. Um, but I really enjoyed it. I Spielberg. This is right up Spielberg's alley. I mean, this is, you know, five years before he did E.T., um, kind of going into this space alien genre. And I think he already seems like a seasoned pro at it. And so, oh, Christian's even got the E.T. poster right behind or behind there. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It wasn't totally what I expected. It is, despite being this kind of like aliens, close encounters, UFO movie, it's really grounded, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, very little actually takes place with like the UFOs and the the, the spaceships and all that it's more so focusing on these characters especially Richard Dreyfus. I found it just really interesting to see his obsession with what going goes on and it's really easy to empathize and understand kind of what he's going through and wanting people to believe him but also knowing that military and government and higher-ups are kind of trying to hide this and his journey with Melinda Dillon's character I think is just really fascinating to where it takes them and what they learn along the way um also francois Truffaut playing a major character in this is really interesting as well so it's kind of cool to see him show up and he's actually really really good in the movie um yeah it it didn't blow me away as much as some of my favorite spielberg films but really really saw i really great i really did enjoy it a lot um it does kind of create a sense of awe and wonder in a really grounded way so close encounters really enjoyed it I think my favorite thing about it is that we don't, and I don't even know if this is a spoiler alert because you've had almost 45 years to see this movie, but we don't see the big mothership until the grand finale of it all. And it's such a spectacle of it. I like that a lot because it's also asking the viewer, like, is this a real thing? Or did this guy just happen to see something out of the corner of his eye? Although there's that scene where they're going flying down the highway, the two Mm -hmm. smaller ships, but it's still like, am I for certain? Did I see this or am I just crazy? Like everybody else thinks, am I just making mountains out of mashed potatoes? Just like the best thing ever. But um, this is coming off what, like two years after Jaws and it's just showing that Spielberg can work with something much like a, on a much more massive scale too. And I saw this a while ago um, for this all, but it's just funny to even think Francois Truffaut being on the set of this. I guess I read where he wasn't so used to this big grandeur of Hollywood. It's just like he's used to the smaller stuff from the French New Wave and all that. But like, could you imagine Francois Truffaut with all the spaceships? And it's like, what am I doing here? But at the same time, ho, 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 I'm having fun. But this is one of my favorite Spielberg movies, I will say. And it is a like a mini semi-quasi prequel to what E.T., has going for it and which is like one of my top five favorite films of all time so and i love spielberg i think i've said that like every single podcast where we've encountered him i love the man he's my favorite director he's my favorite modern director but it's fun and richard Dreyfus is very good in this too as is yeah. melinda Dillon, as is also terry gar she it feels brief all too brief but i love terry gar and like everything i've seen of her 
Yeah, I thought I like Brett hadn't seen this in a long time. Um, and so it was basically like watching it for the first time. And I liked it a lot more than I remembered that I had. Um, I'm usually not much of a sci-fi person, but the story was told pretty, I mean, obviously it's Spielberg. Uh, the only thing I kept thinking while I was watching it was this must be the type of movie that Spielberg had always wanted to make as a kid. Because like, you know, Jaws obviously is fantastic, my favorite Spielberg film, but it wasn't of that grand scale. I mean, it was, I think, more impressive because it could show what he did on like a smaller budget with, with a more limited, you know, issues on set. But when he's given those reins, like that must have been his greatest joy was making a film like this. Cause he's always seen the world in this like bigger, more fantastical way. And it feels like this film was his first opportunity to be able to like spread his wings in that sense, I guess. And I wanna, I can't believe I didn't think about this to bring this up, but really quick, Anthony, cause you said this is the film that he always wanted to make. He did his first sort of, you know, small scale, hey, I'm still like a teenager. It's called Firelight. And it is from 1964. Only three minutes of it still exists. But it is mm. basically catalyst for what this is. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I, I'm i assuming he has like the original cut because it's his. But really only three minutes has been seen by anybody. But yeah. Sorry. I just want to put that in there. So, I mean, you could say, yes, this is the movie that he's only wanted to make at a large, large scale. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's like you see all these other films influenced by it, like uh, Super 8 feels like very influenced by Close Encounters and like obviously E.T. will go on to have similar tones to it. I also like the idea that we're not afraid of the aliens, which is like one of the, I mean, I'm thinking maybe one of the first times we've like seen that in a film because a lot of the other Christians gesturing, no, he's afraid of (laughs) them. I close my eyes every time they show the faces. I, <laughs> I mean, like, um, that the people know. in the society aren't Uh-oh. just like, kill it, kill it. Like, as soon as it comes out of the spaceship, which is what most, you know, like, Day the Earth Stood Still and all that stuff from the 50s seemed very, like, defensive. And the people in this film wanted to find out, like, more about it. Everybody, from Richard Dreyfuss's character to the scientists and everybody, you know, they were all interested in, in seeing what happened. And it's a little bit of like, a. I think it could be a little shorter, honestly. I mean, like Richard Dreyfuss gives a performance that's very Richard Dreyfuss. Like <laughs> he's all kind of always overacting. But that the end, that finale that you were talking about, when they start playing the music and the lights are flashing and you see the grandness of it all, makes it very, very worth it. You know, and I think it's more of a vis- visually great than performance great. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't like blown away by any of the characters or any of the actors in particular. It was just like, I was, it was, it was more of like a nerd thing for me. I was like, oh yeah, I want to see this big spaceship, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I would definitely say this is a movie where the payoff is pretty fantastic and it leaves you on a very much a high note. And I, I, I don't know, like I, I really like your point about, you know, not as fearful of the aliens as we would expect, because I I think the film in some ways with, with Spielberg and his imagination and the the tools and the budget he had here in some ways is confirming, you know, what society expects, like the aliens look how I would expect them to look. The mothership looks like a manifestation of what I think a grandly designed mothership would look like. 
but it's also more so it, it's less about them taking us away and experiencing on us and more so about like knowledge and the music in the movie, like how this kind of universal language between us and them is the music and the notes that are played throughout the movie is a really, really strong plot tool. At least it was for me and kind of that more connection rather than fear. So I think that's a great point. The best type of aliens coming to earth movies have to do with the language of it all. Cause I'm thinking back now on arrival. arrival. Yeah. yeah. But this is so interesting to use music. Music is the commonality of it. And then of course you got John Williams doing the score. And you have a very iconic, the iconic notes of it all. Mm-hmm. I think of that too as like the Twilight Zone to serve man. Like it's all about the language. You're right. That's yeah. interesting. I, the part that gave me chills was, and again, spoiler, sorry. But um, when they, when the ship, you know, comes down after they communicate with it, the gate, the doors open and out come the pilots and and whatever from 1944 or 45 that were lost for some reason like that gave me chills it was just like oh my god imagine <laughs> this guy's coming home it's like welcome home it's like wow you know i don't know why that that did it for me this time but i thought that was like the most emotional part of the movie for me if that makes any sense because i didn't really like richard dreyfus wasn't particularly emotional to his family nor was anybody else to each other really so the beauty was like us meeting the aliens you know Mm -hmm. which i kind of appreciate because it wasn't like burdened down by like some over-the-top love story or something like you know it was pretty much to the point in that sense yeah i mean i wanted to follow those those you know people who had been lost since the 1940s after the movie like i want to see like what what's their next (laughs) steps how are they readjusting to society what is what questions are they being asked and what do they know uh, so that's really fascinating too. And I want to know what's going on with like Richard Dreyfus. When, <laughs> once, once he gets in that ship, like what's going to happen now? Yeah. It's, I know that you're supposed to think in ways of like, oh, it's going to be peaceful experience. He's going to, you know, astral project all these thoughts he's never thought of, but I'm always the down person. And I'm like, are they going to probe him? <laughs> well, like everybody else made it out of the ship, right? Yeah. I mean, but like, oh, he's, he's seen things. is it actually them no it does kind of subvert things though because i i really love the poster of this movie um it's kind of got just like this winding this highway road and over the hills you got this light but it says at the top it says it explains the three encounters and it says first encounter is a ufo sighting second is physical evidence and third it just says contact and so I don't know, seeing the poster going into like that, it, it almost does like, oh, what does that even mean? Uh, and what's, what's that's going to mean for us? And it's kind of interesting to see how it takes that direction. I will never forget when I first saw this, it was on TCM. And this was like during the Robert Osborne era when Ben Mankiewicz only hosted like on Sundays. And he was like, and the fourth kind is the alien sleep with your wife. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> Do I want to watch this? <laughs> What a comment. Like, (laughs) (laughs) no, but I I do think I, I think Spielberg is at his best when he's creating a sense of awe and wonder in his movies. And and I think that's definitely what's happening here. So um, I definitely appreciate it for that. So as far as Oscar success, this is really the only one that we've picked um, that had really big Oscar success um, in 1977. It, won two awards for cinematography and sound effects editing, which was actually a special achievement award. 
Um, it was also nominated. Spielberg got a director nom, um, which he didn't for Jaws, which was nominated for Best Picture. So that's an interesting flip-flop. Uh, so Melinda Dillon got a supporting actress nom, art direction, film editing, score, of course, sound, of course, visual effects, of course. There just happened to be another film from that year that we've talked about that um, was equally as great, if not better in those categories. So I'm assuming this was very close to a best picture nomination and just missed out. So it, it hurts. <laughs> they could only nominate one space film from that year, I guess. So but yeah, that's close encounters of the third kind. Any further thoughts on that before we move on to our next one? It's uh, very good. And also if you have the Blu-ray or I guess if you have any home version of this, there's like three different cuts of it. Watch the theatrical cut. I don't know if those the differences. I just stick with theatrical. Yeah, I was watching on that Blu-ray. I saw a bunch of different cuts. Interesting. Right. All right. Well, Christian, I believe you have our next film. So go ahead and take us away on that one. Okay. So we are going to Japan for this one. All right. So I picked 1977's horror slash comedy slash what the fuck type movie house or house in um, japanese but it is basically the wackiest thing you could ever think of it's like scooby-doo come to life before that you know 2002 scooby-doo movie but it is about a group of young girls in japan the main one being known as gorgeous the rest of them all have kind of names that match their own personality there's kung fu there's fantasy sweet melody but they are um, traveling to go visit gorgeous's aunt who lives in the countryside of japan they are going there just to hang out have a good time um, they're young girls so they're you know giggly and everything when they get to the house, the aunt is kind of, let's just say, she's not all there in her process. She seems a little bit flighty, whatever. One of them puts a watermelon in a um, well. And later on, when she goes to re uh, retrieve that watermelon out of the well, the girl doesn't come back. Well, after that, a lot of shit starts happening. And it's a lot of paranormal activity, let's say. There's a lot of spirits within the house. A lot of shit happens again like i said scooby-doo because that's the only thing i could really think of while watching this is a lot of the crazy aspects that scooby-doo the old cartoon show used to give me um basically translated to this with a lot more possession evilness and some hilarity in there i mean because there's a whole scene with a piano and a girl I won't tell you what happens. It's funny. It's horrific. This is one movie that it definitely should be watched by a lot of people, especially with Halloween season coming up, just really any season. It's also one um, who that has not been seen a whole lot by people because I guess it, it didn't even premiere, quote unquote, in the United States until like the past 10 years or so. It's on Criterion. It's also on HBO Max, which is good. But it's a good movie. I don't think I loved it as much as the first time that I had seen it a few years ago. Um, it is very, it's out there, definitely. And I didn't know how, I don't know, Brett, have you seen this, first of all? Nope, first time. Okay. So it wasn't you, but it was Anthony who I was like, I wonder how he's going to take this. And I don't know. I wonder how you both are going to take this because it is such a an out there film. It's one of uh, Zay's, our good friend Zay's favorite horror films. And I can definitely understand why. Um, 
but yeah, what what say you two? I liked it a lot. I was actually asking to ask you how you heard about it because I'd never heard about this, and I'm always looking for kind of new horror films like this. So I think that I might have heard about this in high school when it first came to America or however it was released. And then I've just seen it a lot with the poster because the orange poster with the cat face is pretty iconic. But I think I only saw it maybe about five years ago. And that's the only time I've ever seen it before or before seeing it again here. I mean, I love horror films. That's the that's my favorite genre. So I was in and happy that you picked something along those lines and that we had two because I picked Suspiria. And it was perfect because I not that I should limit myself like this, but I usually only watch horror movies in September and October. So it's like a perfect way to like kick this off because I have to get to, through a bunch of ones that I want to see. Um, and I had fun with it. I just, I, I thought that it was like, you know, not supposed to be taken too seriously. There were some, you know, moments in the beginning with like the freeze frames and everything that I was like, wow, filmmaking is really like precise and clever. And then like as the <laughs> film went on, not that those techniques weren't great, they were, but I saw them like, it, it was just like they went off the rails. Like it wasn't, you know. I think the, that's what makes it one of the best ones too, because it's like yeah. an un you're not suspecting any of this type of filmmaking with it. Exactly. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. The piano sequence is my favorite, easily. It's just like, it's unbelievable. It's such a visual film that it's hard to talk about it. And like, without giving too much away, um, I, when I was looking it up though, I will say I was imagining being difficult to have been released. I was like, I bet this is one of those movies that like never got released or got a super limited or cut version or something like that because it was crazy enough watching it that I was like, people in 1977, even in America, like we're not ready to see something like this, you know, not mainstream anyway. Uh, yeah. I also, I also really want to say really quick, uh, Nobu Nobuhiko Obayashi is the director of this. Yeah. So um, this was one of the few films that I, I really, I can't think of any others. I finished it and I didn't know what I thought. Like I literally had no idea. I was like, what did I just watch? I had to just like sit with it today to process it. And also to get the damn theme out of my head that just plays consistently throughout the movie. Cause there's something about the music here. That's just like, it's so like it's lighthearted. It's almost like something you'd hear in a, a children's TV show, but it's also sinister at the same time. And I can't really explain it. Um, and I decided that I also really liked it. I just because I I got swept up in it, I was always just struck by whatever the hell was going on. The Scooby-Doo comparison is one I hadn't even thought of. But it's like, you know, if we saw Scooby-Doo from those characters' perspectives, where they were all high on shrooms, this is probably what we get. So um, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm here on, I always have IMDb pulled up just in case there's like things I want to look up about the movies. And I'm just kind of like looking through the images, the, the screen images from this movie. And I'm just like, God, yeah, this movie is friggin' awesome. Like it's, it's visually, it's just like stunning. It's some of it is like things I've never seen before. I love how it uses a lot of different colors. No, significant sequence in the film looks the same it all kind of has its own it's all kind of like 
you know, lit and it, it, it's very colorful, but it's always taking on different things and, and whatnot. And so really impressed with just um, the way it was shot and the direction um, and the, the actresses that come out through it, who just went all in with this. I really, I really like all of them, but I really like um, Yoko Minamita who plays the ants in the movie because she just consistently has that presence of something I'd want in a figure like that in a horror film that, you know, I, I could expect something to go wrong from. And so, yeah, it is. I, yeah. could truly say I have never seen anything like it. Um, I want to see more movies that I walk away from not knowing how I feel about it whatsoever to decide later, just because it's, it's a really cool feeling to have. And um, it kind of kept me up for a little bit, of course, but um just thinking about it and trying to decipher how I felt about it. But it is a really interesting, really beautiful looking, just very unique movie. That's all I have to say. I don't, like I said, I don't, I also don't want to spoil anything. Cause it's one of those where I just feel like you should go in knowing as little as possible, but I also will agree. The piano scene is phenomenal. That is just everything I wanted from this type of movie in that scene. So. And it does like, Oh, Sorry. I was going to say it does look really good. Like it, most of it is all sets and everything, but it's great. It's yeah. It gave me like, I don't know why it reminded me a little bit of like Super Mario 64. It was like this, there, I don't know if you guys ever played that game on the N64, but there was this part where like this piano like comes to life in the basement and the basement is kind of like this horror like themed, it's like a kind of like a dungeon. And so it had a little bit of like, it reminded me of that and loving the play on the old dark house, like the haunted house kind of like trope in such a unique way. Cause we've seen so many stories about haunted houses. It's like ridiculous. Like everything from, you know, the haunting where you don't see anything films where you mm-hmm. see everything. And this was like balls to the wall. I want to watch it again. Yeah. I want to show people this film and see what they think. You know what I mean? Because it's just like one of those, horror films that for people who like horror this is a good time it almost is like kind of evil dead-ish in that sense you know yeah I mean? yeah because you're also you're laughing while at the same time you're like what what like <laughs> yeah. what is going to happen next and then something happens immediately and you're like what the and then exactly you're like i gotta show this to people yeah i i won't say how but i'll just say a character in this movie gets bit on the ass at one point and at that scene, I was just like, I was like, <laughs> I was kind of laughing, but I'm also like, oh my God. So yeah, I understand that completely. It'd be There's fun a- to see in a theater, I think. Honestly. Oh, yeah. That's what I was thinking. It'd be fun to have like people reacting to this. Yeah. But there's a movie also I wanted to say, because Brett was like, I've never seen anything like this, but I could not remember the name of it. And I found it through all my archives. It's called The Happiness of the Kata Kuris. It is also a Japanese um, comedy slash horror slash also musical film that I saw years and years ago. I don't know what in what context, but it just reminded me of that. Good to know. Yeah. I don't know. See, Japanese horror is interesting because sometimes you can have the really serious, serious stuff. That's like also pretty dramatic. And then you have that, you know, the fun, what the fuck type <laughs> movies that are also very fun to watch, you know? Yeah. It can be serious. Yeah. I did read where um, 
the screenwriter of this, um, I believe it was uh, Chigumi Obayashi. Um, it was based on like his, his, he was trying to like bring to life a child's nightmares that like, I think he had like discussed with his daughter or something like that. And it, that was really an interesting concept to me. Cause it was like, I feel like they did, they were successful in bringing together what that might be like. If you're a child and you have just an absolute terrifying nightmare, it would make sense coming out like this. And so I really like that as kind of their guiding light as well. I can yeah. definitely see that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, as I think we would all probably expect, this did not get any Oscar nominations, but um, definitely one that I wish they could have seen, obviously in the US, and that they would have given, given consideration to. So, any further thoughts on House before we move on to our next film? It's on a lot of people have HBO Max. It's on HBO Max. Yes, absolutely. It's on Criterion as well. Yeah. And cool. if you have Criterion channel out there, it's on there too. Nice. Perfect. Cool. Awesome. Well, Anthony, you have our next film. So go ahead and take us away there. Yes, I do. The uh, next film is Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, it's a story about two bootleggers, Burt Reynolds and his uh, sidekick, Jerry Reed, as they try to travel across from Texas to Georgia, transporting, was it 400 cases of uh, cores? beer which i didn't know this but i guess was illegal at the time for whatever reason that is there's some as some history that i didn't know uh along the way he encounters um sally fields who's just run away from a wedding and uh is being chased by the groom and his father jackie gleason uh who's a police officer and it's just basically a cross-country you know, cat and mouse game uh, between these cars. And it's, it's, it's very heavy on the, uh, on the cars and on the CB radio talk, obviously. Uh, it's a little gimmicky in that sense, but in, I think in a good way. Um, and it's, it's just like a, it's just a fun comedy. It was one of those things where I've, I've always heard about Smokey and the Bandit. Like, you know, it's one of those movies that my dad always was like, oh yeah, Smokey and the Bandit. Cause I guess it was, really cultural you know uh, i mean i know everybody in my from my dad's generation had a cb radio that was the way they communicated so it, it was like you know before cell phones it was really the only way to do it and i actually think it's kind of cool you know switching from different channels and whatnot so i, I don't know if how popular they were before this film uh but i imagine they got more popular after and that's one of those cases where we see a film have like a massive impact on you know the culture even if it's for like a concentrated amount of time so um although i don't think it's the greatest film ever made i you know i, I mean there's there's definitely parts that um are lacking in the comedy sense like like punchlines are like a little bit off i think the editing could be tighter it could work better i think if you look at blues brothers it, it kind of that has some of those gags done more well, like, you know, with, with being chased and car crash and all that. But uh, there's something to be said for the historical significance of it, the cultural significance of it. And um, it's fine if you just want to have some fun with it. I was expecting, I think, a better film. Honestly, I was. And 
it was more of just a good time. What'd you guys think? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I yeah, I also don't think it's a, a great film by any means. I think a lot of it does become repetitive. Um, once we kind of ease into what they're doing, where um, you know, Bandit is going to drive this car and get away. And he's actually, I guess he's trying to lure the sheriff from the truck, you know, and so he's gonna be on the radio, he's gonna call someone up to help him out, they're gonna get away, and then they're gonna keep going for a while, and then they're gonna do it again. And along the way, you know, the sheriff's car is just getting beat to death further and further down the road. So I thought, you know, once it kind of settled into that, it was like just repeating the same thing over and over. And that was one of my bigger flaws with the movie. That said, it's always fun. Like you said, I, you know, I, it's never boring or anything. It's, it's pretty fast moving for the most part. Um, and obviously it does slow down times for those scenes between Burt Reynolds and Sally Field and whatnot. But um, I, I definitely feel what you're saying about this being like a kind of a cultural landmark because, you know, I think you know, it is a movie that my dad was also familiar with, had talked about. Um, obviously, Burt Reynolds was one of the biggest stars, movie stars in the world around this time. And so that was a big deal. Everybody knew Burt Reynolds. And this is one of his signature, if not the signature role for him um, in, in terms of popularity and kind of iconography. And so um, what I will have to say is I did like the radio gimmick. I, I just love not just that they're so commonly used, but that bandit always has people that he's either helped out before or that just admire him. Like everybody knows like, Hey, it's bandit bandits calling in who needs our help. Of course we're going to go out. And that, that kind of community aspect through the radios was kind of cool. Um, and you kind of wonder what those previous adventures were that led to all those connections. Um, but I really did. I liked the ensemble. I, I'll just start with Jackie Gleason because I thought he was awesome. I, I thought Jackie Gleason was excellent in this movie. Like this is a comedic, you know, funny villain that, you know, we absolutely do not want to root for, but you can't hate. I thought he was tremendous. I, I really applaud that performance because that was kind of the draw for me. But also, you know, Sally Field is doing her thing. Jerry Reed is kind of his partner in crime. Cletus, I, you know, I thought he was a fun little sidekick. He's the one that, did the soundtrack for the movie and you know you've got the eastbound and down song which is i i think still very popular at least in some circles today um and so you know i i think this was a time where dukes of hazard was also pretty popular i i would absolutely watch this over dukes of hazard uh 100 so at least credit it for that but no i agree i it's not i think it's a great film i definitely think it has its flaws it's repetitive and um, kind of goes through the motions sometimes, but I did have fun with it consistently, which is kind of, I think, what you can ask for from a movie like this. So I really liked it a lot. <laughs> like, I don't think I was ever expecting to like this movie, and I did, and I laughed so much. And Jackie Gleason is so funny in this, Burt Reynolds is so cool in this, Sally Fields, yeah, she's fine, she's whiny a lot, but the fact that this like spawned sequels. Like, even if Burt Reynolds isn't in, I think, the last of the sequels, I, the cultural impact enough. But um, I've, I totally forgot Jerry Reed is the actors or the, yeah, the guy in this, his name, because I can only think of the Golden Girls when Sophia's like, I ate a huge shrimp out of Jerry Reed's hand. 
in the iconic episode where they meet Mr. Burt Reynolds. But um, no, I can see where you are coming from where a bunch of it is repetitive. I mean, it's mostly driving, but at least it's a 90, it's 96 minutes. So it's a harmless runtime. I think the best for me, the, my favorite moment is when he's interacting with the sheriff at the diner yeah. and they don't, they don't know each other because he only knows him through the radio. He, like he's never seen this guy before. And I'm just like, this is it. This is this guy. Like, this is your chance, sir. And they, they just keep going and they still don't know what each other really looks like, you know. But I'm very happy that we got to see this because, I, I mean, I don't know if I would have watched it either way, but it's so fun. I don't know. I would like to see it again. And I'd like to see the second one. Yeah. But good pick because it is it's a damn fun, funny movie, too. I, for some reason, the most emotional scene was when they, those guys are going to kill the dog for like no reason, by the way. They were just going to like kill this dog. And that's when Jerry Reed's character kind of like stepped up a little bit for me because I didn't really know what purpose he served other than just like being, you know, wanting a hamburger, being always in front of Bandit a little bit. Uh, Jackie Gleason's definitely the best character. And his, his son is also really good. Like the comedic timing between that duo. Like anytime they're in the car having a conversation with each other, I'm laughing. I'll say that about the film. Like that yeah. is, it. and Burt Reynolds, of course, iconic. Norm Macdonald, my favorite comedian. This is where we get the uh, the SNL Turd Ferguson impersonation from. Like, <laughs> and honestly, it was a pretty good impersonation because as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, damn, that's all the mannerisms are, are pretty much down. Um, I also really like the two two character actors who put these people in this uh wild goose chase to begin with the um those rich the the father uh son duo that those rich um yes you know what i'm talking about they were just funny to look at you know? <laughs> pat, McCormick and, pat mccormick as big enos burdett and paul williams as yeah I, I was trying to remember the names yeah yeah they were pretty funny like those kind of characters if, if a movie has enough little characters like that i will forgive the repetitive plot and they were cool right. there's a couple cool car tricks like that one where they boxed him in so that the police couldn't see him and everything i mean that's yeah. stuff you have to admire because it's like that's real like it's not cgi you know people were actually driving the car they had these stunt stunt drivers doing these things so i i kind of respect that gives it points for me just in general because it's it's more like documenting a time where like filmmaking was if you wanted to see it you had to do it um right so it's cool for that also yeah i totally agree every time i see paul williams in a movie i'm just like hey it's paul williams because he has a he has a long weird kind of history where a lot of people thought he was dead if you go through my facebook archives i posted a hey paul williams r.i.p situation Turns out he wasn't dead. They made a whole documentary about the man. So you're spreading this. Is that what you're saying? I didn't know. <laughs> we all thought Steve from Blues Clues was dead for a while, too. And, you know, he did we, though? <laughs> did we? There was a time where I definitely did. So, <laughs> granted, I was probably like a sixth grader. So, right. But, yeah, I, I think we're all in agreement. This is a really fun movie. Um, Christian, I, I agree. I do want to check out the sequels at some point just to see what other hijinks they come up with. Just because the idea of, you know, Bandit and Cletus 
smuggling beer across state lines. That's exactly like what they would have to do in this movie. That makes perfect sense as far as the conflict goes. And so I'd be interested to see what other things they come up with in later films as well. Perfect. Um, and I, this did, I don't know if we mentioned, just had the one Oscar nom for film editing. So not a ton of Oscar success, but did get, you know, recognized a little bit. So she got a song nomination though. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Any further thoughts on Smokey and the Bandit before we get on to our next film? All right. Well, Christian, your next film is next. So go ahead and take us away. Okay, so Christian was like, hey, English films, nah, I'm good. So we're going to go to Italy now. We go from Japan to Italy. And we are going to be talking about a film called A Special Day. And it is directed by Ettore Scola. Um, again, it's an Italian film and it stars the one and only Sophia Loren and the one and only Marcello Mastri- Mastroianni. Hard last name. Sorry, friends. Anyway, um, so this is a film set on May 4th, 1938. And that is an important day in the history of Italy, especially during that time, because it is the day that Hitler came to Rome and sat and visited with Mussolini. There was a whole honest to God, like the entire country came out to see this uh, uh, monumentous occasion. Um, But this film takes place in an apartment complex where one housewife and her neighbor do not go see this momentous occasion. And this housewife played by Lorraine, her name is um, Antoinetta, right? Yeah, that's how you pronounce it. Antoinetta, um, she has six kids. If she has seven kids, she gets like a government stipend or whatever, which I was like, damn, six isn't enough, whatever. But she does stay home. She doesn't have a housekeeper. So she has to, you know, clean the house, get everything ready for when the family does come home from the parade, yada, yada, yada. Um, But across in the courtyard, she meets her neighbor, Gabriel, um, after her bird flies away and flies into his apartment. They chat for a little bit and then she goes back to her apartment. Well, then he comes back over to her apartment and they talk about their stances on life. There's a nosy neighbor who then informs her that, hey, this guy, you might not want to be seen with him because he is an anti-fascist. He's Antifa. Whoa. (laughs) That's all I could think about during this. Um, But he's anti-fascist. As we know, Italy at this time was a fascist nation with Mussolini. Um, He also has another secret that he is a homosexual man. And because of this, he is about to be taken, arrested, and sent to, I believe it's Sardinia, which is where? It's like an island country, basically near Sicily. Um, But basically, they form a friendship. Um, It's an interesting type friendship, as it is only through the course of a single day. Some things happen, and then the day ends, and the parade is over, and they have to go their separate ways. Um, I actually watched this the day of us recording this. I liked it. I don't think I really loved it. And I, I bought, I blind bought it on the Criterion collection, the Blu-ray, because I really wanted it. These two actors are pretty great. I love Sophia Loren. So like, I'll go ahead and buy anything of hers. The actual look of this film is very bleak. It is in a, don't adjust your TVs, everybody. <laughs> it is in a sepia tone type manner. I'm not very good on the film jargon. So if there's like a specific like way to say that, but it looks sepia tone through the whole thing. I can understand why that is. This is sort of a downtrodden day 
for a lot of people, this day could possibly history change the course of history for Italy and Germany. What happens next? Um, these two aren't very happy characters before they meet one another. Their lives are very much similar, although very much different, obviously. Um, especially Sophia Loren's character. She's a very, she's the definition of a sad housewife. Um, but it's a fine movie. It's very dramatic. I wouldn't say there's happy moments that much. Maybe the ending scene with it involves a book um, that they talk about a lot. But I, when I was watching this, I thought of The Bridges of Madison County, which is a movie I know you two probably haven't seen. But if any of our viewers out there have seen, yeah, sad, sad Italian housewife type story. Random man comes and maybe changes her life for the better. But yeah, I, I really wanted to watch this only because I had bought it and I was like, this is the opportune time to see it. So, but go ahead. Yeah, I was I was also excited for this one because I generally like a lot of Italian films I've seen quite a bit. And again, Loren and Mastroianni, we talked about Marriage Italian Style uh, 64, which is excellent. Um, I'm kind of on a similar page to you, Christian. I, I, I think I liked it, uh, but it's it, it's very much a down the middle type of movie for me. Um, I think I just I for films i do like films where there's like two characters and they share a lot of dialogue and we learn about them but for me there wasn't a whole lot about these characters that stuck out aside from their political beliefs which they don't hash out as much as i expected and the ways they're oppressed and so a lot of the conversations are about loren's character being a woman and fascist italy and the oppression she faces and then of course uh, Mastroianni, who, you know, for his anti-fascist views, but also being a queer man. And I, I was glad those discussions happened. And that was something that the film really focused on. But I don't feel like it gave him that many characteristics outside of that. And so to me, they seemed more just like holders of those identities, those characters, more so than like fully fleshed out human beings to me at times. Um, and so I just I found it just at times hard to connect with what they were saying and the way the film was progressing. And it is a downer. I mean, you're, it's not a film you have much fun with. And so when the dialogue does have its moments, but isn't consistently hitting for me, it, it kind of lessens the impact a little bit. And so the more I've thought about it, the less fondness I've had for it. So I don't think it's a film that's going to age well for me, but and it's not, particularly memorable for me but um i also just the sepia tone i like i said i, I get what they're going for but i didn't feel like it was necessary um and it, it just didn't really work for me i i don't know why but it, it just it just didn't really hit and so i don't know i yeah i i'm not left with much more to expand upon this film like i said it was kind of forgettable for me in some ways and i wanted to like it more but as i talk about it more i think i just like it less and less and so it's, it's definitely not a film that i like straight up hate or dislike i think it has its qualities but it just didn't work for me i liked it i really did i don't know why it was just like and it caught me off guard because i wasn't expecting to like it Ooh. um opposites yeah i i just i love the stories that are told over the course of one day like a specific amount of time so i'm already sold on that um 
I, I was like hesitant in the beginning because it was it was kind of slow moving and I didn't know why we had to have that much B-roll, uh, you know, archival footage of like Germany and not, you know, Nazi Germany and I'm sorry, Nazi Italy. Uh, but I like that, though. I like seeing all of that. You did? Yeah, because I'm a person who likes like thinking back on it. I like knowing what we're getting into, like what's the significance of this particular day? You know, it was just, I don't know. There was like Italian, it, it had, I'm used to like sort of the neorealism of, you know, everything's very depressing and things like that. So I wasn't expecting it to be like an upbeat film or anything. Um, I was into their, uh, I was into their chemistry. I thought they had really good chemistry. Um, I don't think they were fully flushed out human beings or characters like you had said, Brett, because like there were times where I was like, ah, okay, it's not, it's not as impactful if we don't know much about, I thought we should have known more about um, the Mastro, how do you say his last name? <laughs> I think it's Mastroianni. Yeah. We should have known a little bit more about his character. Um, just a little bit more, you know, uh, but what they shared with each other, like their insecurities, their oppressions, um, and, and really the second half of the film like picked up a lot for me. But the first half was a little, little slow, it was building, but like once there's this plot reveal and everything that transpires from there has this like melancholy sadness. I'm, I, I really, again, the story being told in one day, I love the fact that like one day, you know, every day could be the same. And then one day there's something that like totally will change you forever it'll be something that you'll always remember a person that you meet who you'll never see again will just you'll have this incredible kind of it's, it's this sort of like romantic idea that i just fall in love with every time so i think that's why i fell for the film as hard as i did um not that it was like expertly crafted in terms of their characters uh, but i thought both of the performances were strong um the reveals were good and it was actually wasn't as sappy as I thought it would be mm. like that. And that's the one thing. And I love Casablanca and I, and I love films like that where the love can't be and all that, but this one felt more real. Like this one felt more human to me. Maybe it's because it's 30 years, you know, in the, in, into the seventies, it was less sort of like Hollywood romantic. It, they had this like grittiness to it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And it, and it, it makes sense that you bring up the neorealism too, because this is a film that I would expect to be made, maybe not the way it is, but um, to come up during that time frame, especially with this, you know, taking place in like 1938. I will agree on the performances. I will say, although I, I'm not big on sometimes the characters in the script all the time, I do think that Lauren and Mastroianni make the most of it. And I think they, you know, they, you know, they had worked together before. I think they, you know, they had a history and I've, I haven't seen a ton of performances whatsoever, but in everything I've seen, they've delivered. So um, I definitely don't think either of them are fault with the film whatsoever for me. It's it's a different feeling to see Sophia Loren. I won't, I don't know how to say this in a way, but in quote unquote ugly type look <laughs> where she has no makeup on. She's a tired woman. She said something like a household like this needs three types of mothers one to cook, one to clean, one to take a nap, because that's what she needs. She honestly needs a nap. Yes. But she's so good a long at it. One. 
she's so good at it because I've seen her in like a uh, like marriage Italian style, like we've talked about, where she's this beautiful, glamorous woman, and two women where she's facing the post effects of World War II, and then this where she's like, "Well, good luck at the parade. I'll be here if you need me." I guess it's right. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's the acting. <laughs> I was kind of surprised and. Correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, but this was not based on like a play. And no, I, I was surprised because it's it feels like one that would be. Right. But. It's it's a totally original thing. But you're right in thinking of it because you only really need you honestly need the two people and then maybe a, the side character of that nosy neighbor. That's it. Right. Yeah. Because you could be like, it could start when the family has already left for the day. Yeah, exactly. Right. And also the ending of this, um, I mean, the ending of it is the family comes home, yada, yada, whatever. But just it's cringy to think that her husband is like, hey, let's go to bed. Maybe the seventh kid will be named Adolf. Oh, yeah. Like, I will say that hit me. That was like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That that was that was an effective moment in the movie, I will say. And it's it's also like, wow. Right now, it's like the 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 friendship between Germany and Italy is fine, but just you wait a couple more years, and it's going to be all hell for both of these countries. And for the Italians, obviously, we see the after effect in the neorealism films, but it ain't going to be good. And you definitely don't want to be naming your kid Adolf or Benito, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, it's also just heartbreaking, like the fact that Sophia Loren is is so so stuck in this life that she's so obviously miserable and she has a few hours of of euphoria and then it's just back to the old same thing and, and i love that i love that because that's what happens right it's not like the movies where everything all of a sudden changes for the like most of the time it's just going to be your life as usual except for this one sort of great encounter i love that I don't know. I'm I'm a sucker for that that type of romance, but I think it was done really well. Watch the bridges of Madison County. <laughs> yeah, because this is that's literally the same type of situation going on here. Who's in that film? I'll look it up. I'll, I'll Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood. Okay, and she plays an Italian housewife. So, Ooh. <laughs> okay. But you're kind of right because I don't think there's a moment in this though where she. When she's going over to the apartment across the way, you don't ever really see her going into the courtyard and up and everything. It's like, you know, she's trapped from apartment to apartment. Mm-hmm. You know, she can only watch from her window. And that's great, too. Yeah. I love that. And it's like this moment may have changed her life, but she knows what's going to happen to him. And she knows she'll probably never see this guy again. It's back to business, I guess, with my six kids. And it's something that right. she's never going to tell anybody. Oh, yeah, I, I found yeah. this one guy who I like, had this amazing, you know, she's not going <laughs> to tell her husband. <laughs> it's just going to be something that she lives with and she goes to sleep and that's and that's it. And there's that's heartbreaking and beautiful at the same time. I also want to say I like yeah. the opening shot of this where she's going through the apartment because, you know, that apartment is small, but yeah. it's six, seven, eight people in total but yet it's winding around so much. You're like, is this, a, this is like a never ending apartment? But you know, for a damn fact, it is small inside. Plus that bird. Uh, Plus the bird. <laughs> yeah. Were you saying something, Anthony? I was going to say the closing shot is, is also really great. 
like his first film that's like sort of told very simply through the camera and everything like that when they when they break away from that it's it is sort of refreshing and hit on a different emotional level because it was so reserved throughout mm-hmm. the rest of the film you know i think these are like pretty smart choices that were made in terms of like cinematography and there's and i love that shot where she's stand um she's in the middle of the uh, after after the uh after the big plot reveal where she's on the roof and she's sort of standing in between these sheets that are blowing and she's mm-hmm. central into the doorway. I mean, it uses like the center image a lot, even at the end of the film, when she's going back into her bed, it's like, she's always in a doorway. She's always in an enclosed space. She's always like locked in to one particular area. I think it was it, visually, it was, uh, it was smart, smart choices where, like, like that were made. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, the, those are great points. I really especially like the point that just that one day where she does get to experience something nice before going back to the, you know, uneasiness of it all. And it's it's why this is one, it's unlike other films that I found a little bit forgettable or didn't enjoy as much in that. I would watch this again, not for a while, probably. Like I give it five years at least to sit on it and see, but it's one that I could see, you know, check out again, see if my view has changed at all. Because um, I do like the ideas and i think that's why i wouldn't say i straight up dislike it or anything like that so yeah christian did you say what this was nominated for no but it was nominated for best actor and at the time it was called best foreign language film we got that nomination so only two things yeah not a ton of oscar six but success but it did get their attention so i'm surprised they both weren't nominated I know. Yeah. Especially being Loren. That's kind of interesting, but. Oh, I also want to say, cause I was, when I was reading through this today, it is, uh, well, it's one of the 100 uh, Italian films to be saved, which is 100 films that have changed the collective memory of the country of Italy between 1942 and 1978. Ooh. And it sits at number 97. Just made it in onto the wire. Interesting. Very nice. Any further thoughts on a special day before moving on to our next film? All right. Well, Anthony, you've got our next one. So feel free to take us away there. Yeah. And it's uh, Suspiria, directed by Dario Argento, the uh, Italian horror director. it's about a American ballet student who visits uh, Germany or is moving to Germany to attend her ballet school. Uh, as she approaches the doorway, she sees a woman frantically mumbling something and then leaving to go into the rain. Uh, we learn that that woman then is murdered in a pretty brutal way. And so uh, the student played by uh, Jessica Harper, um, goes back to the school and is starting to make some friends there, learns that there's some unusual things happening. Uh, They don't exactly know where the teachers uh, and and go during the night. Do they stay at the school the whole time? Well, I don't know. I think this and and odd things start to happen. I can't really, I don't want to give away too, too much, but it's one of those stories where, it's pretty basic in, in its plot. I mean, it's, it's just really about this one girl trying to figure out what's happening at the school. 
Um, and it works, I think, more visually for me than it does narratively. Uh, I did like it a lot. This is my, I think this is my first Argento film, actually. Mm-hmm. I've never seen uh, one of his. This is definitely the first time I've seen this. And I know there was a remake of it recently. Um, how was that? Did anybody see that? I like it. I like it quite a bit. The remake? It's very different. It is like very, very different. Okay. <laughs> okay, we're going to lose fans here. I think the remake, um, a lot of people need to shut the fuck up about it it's overrated thank you i see i like it a lot but i would also agree it's a little bit overrated like i i, I think it's really good but it's not like a masterpiece or anything so. people are still it's 2018 it came out people still talk about it on twitter like it's the bible or something it's <laughs> it mm, eh, i don't care i'm sorry i don't like it that much it's fine but bleh. anyway original one sometimes with movies like these one scene like the opening scene can sell me and the first 10 minutes of this film are phenomenal i was hook line and sinker i was in um that is such a graphic brutal death uh that occurs and i was i was watching it and like eating at the same time which is i couldn't have picked the worst film to be like eating lunch (laughs) but i was kind of looking away for a second and next thing i knew i had to rewind it go back and I was just like my mouth was just like open I was like that is an incredible sequence I mean I'm sure that people in the horror genre are are familiar this is not news to them but to me I was like wow this is definitely one of the best opening sequences of a horror film that I've seen in recent years um there's uh, to me like witchcraft is one of the least interesting like uh horror movie tropes I'm not necessarily there's nothing there that I think hasn't really been done. Um, but it's, it's done. It's pretty subtle in terms of is you don't really even know that it's about witchcraft really until like the middle or maybe even later than that in the film, it had all these great supporting characters who I really, really like. And uh, you know, the Mrs. Tanner, the, uh, I don't even know what her title would be. Daniel, the blind piano player, I think was fantastic. He's definitely my favorite character in this film uh, in terms of supporting. Uh, Yeah, I thought it worked. I will say um, I want to thank the remake um, for giving us the original because for the longest time, this is the hardest movie to find. Like I could not find it anywhere. Yeah, I couldn't find it on DVD, nothing. Eventually, I had to interlibrary loan it because I did have a link to it. I didn't know that it was going to be in English. I thought that I was watching some a weird dub, especially since a lot of the lips don't move. But that is just how it is. That's that's the Suspiria we know. I did. Um, I liked it. I didn't love it. I like the look of it, I think, more than anything, because it is for a horror movie, a very colorful film. Um, like you said, that opening death scene is pretty fucked up and it's great um the rest of it is good it's an interesting mystery slash thriller before it gets to anything really bizarre and scary which i liked and i don't know Ar- argento is pretty good the what, what do you it's like giallo is that what you call them italian horror yeah, so, yeah right yeah, yeah um i feel bad that i cannot tell you what i've seen of his but i've seen some of his movies um 
I think I've seen Deep Red also, mm. which is also pretty good. But I do want to see Opera, Tenebre. Um, but no, I really liked it somewhat. It's not like the best horror film. It's great to look at. And the finale is pretty lit. Yeah, this was also my first Argento film. And I think my first Giallo Giallo film that I've seen as well. Um, and I had actually seen the opening sequence before. Um because I, it may have been the Bravo thing. I can't remember, but I was looking at a list of like scariest uh, uh, horror scenes of all time. It was either scariest or best. And this was one that came up and it was talking about real. So of course my interest was peaked. I'm like, okay, I got to watch this. So I jumped on YouTube and ruined it for myself. It didn't ruin it. It was still just as effective this time. But yeah, so I had seen that sequence before and I agree. It's, it's an awesome sequence to start the movie. Um, what kind of surprised me was that that was definitely about as brutal as it got. Um, I, I've always, you know, kind of understood Argento and, and these films as like extremely bloody, blood gushing and gore and whatnot. And there's certainly, don't get me wrong, there's certainly a lot of that here. And maybe it's just being in like 2021 now and everything I see, but it wasn't quite as much as I expected, which is not necessarily a critique. It just wasn't what I expected. Um but I agree. I, I do think the strongest points of this film, as you both mentioned, is, are the visual aspects, but also the sound. Um, I thought the sound throughout the film was legitimately creepy. Um, and there are some voices throughout the film that just kind of put me on it. I watched this at pretty late at night uh, with, with all the lights off, and it was pretty effective in that way. Um, now, that's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen, but I, I did find the sound used pretty effective in generating that. Uh, but you, the use of red, the cinematography and, and the colors and the production design of being in the school and all its kind of nooks and crannies that are really mysterious is really just really well done. Um, and it also moves really quickly. I, I did not. Of course, it's only like an hour and 32 minutes, but it felt really fast to me um, as we go to film. And as a result, some of the plot points did come a little bit suddenly for me. But I didn't mind it too much because the film just it seemed to move quick and it, it got where it was going and it didn't waste any time, um, which in a way sets it apart from the remake because the remake is actually pretty long, if I remember correctly. So um, I really enjoyed it. I, I think this is another one of those films where it definitely has its moments of greatness in, in some aspects. I think it is at least close to great. But most of all, I just I enjoyed watching it and absorbing it and kind of in a weird way, having fun with it. Um, it's definitely one I would watch multiple times. Once again, I really liked it. Um, and like I said, it's interesting to think about this in the context of the remake and that this is the first time I'd seen this. I saw the remake first when it came out in 2018. And like I said, they are extremely different, like at the center, the same plot, the same kind of intro, but very, very different movies. I will say I prefer this one. I prefer the original, even though I do like the remake quite a bit. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I, I just enjoyed it. I, I kind of got wrapped up in it and um, whatnot. And the Miss Tanner in the film was played by Alita Valley, which really shocked me because she's in the third man and I adore her in that movie. And I thought she was great here as well. And I just wasn't expecting to see her show up. So it was nice to see her in this too. Also, a lot of people don't talk about this, but um, classic Hollywood actress Joan Bennett in it as Madame Blanc, 
which I didn't realize that she was in this for the first time. And we've seen her before when we talked about Father of the Bride in 1950. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it was just nice seeing her too in this. And like Anthony said, one of the best characters is the blind piano player. That whole scene with him and the dog outside, <laughs> just like in the empty courtyard in the middle of the night. It's so freaky, but it's so good. And it is good use of sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I, I, I thought that I had seen, I thought that Demons was, I thought he directed Demons, but I guess he didn't. He, I think he just wrote it. Um, Demons is so good. The one in the movie theater? Yes. Yeah, that is so good. That's when yeah. you should watch. That's a good one. Um, but I didn't. I was the reason I picked it was because of the Bravo scariest movie. It's funny you mentioned that. Bro. <laughs> I live my life off that problem. Like one day I'm gonna get through all 100. Um, and that was one of the reasons I picked it was that I could just get. And I know that Christian watches that also. Um, for some reason, that thing's always resonated with me. Um, yeah, there is an excellent use of color in this film. I mean, obviously with the with the red, the, but the, also like the blues and everything. It's well done in the sense of like the scene where they have um, where the where the beds have been infested by the maggots, and so mm. they're all in the hall, and they have these sheets up around. And as soon as the lights go out, red comes up. Like, it's just this wonderful, like, there's never a moment of, like, relaxation. It's always, like, there's always some ominous presence around. Um, I thought that the, actually the snoring was was scary. Like, I thought it'd be funny because it was like, oh, there's somebody snoring. But it was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like, when, when, when that came back later on in the film, I, I don't know, I just thought that, was, that, pretty, that worked pretty well. Yeah, I completely agree. That was one of those moments of the sound where I was like, oh, I don't like that at all. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And the score by Goblin, let's shout out to them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know that before um, before pandemic and all, Screenland theaters used to show this and the other Argento films. And I'm pretty sure Goblin did a lot of the score too, but they used to do like live sound with it and everything. It's like the full-on orchestra Wow, that's with, awesome. with all like the synth- synthesizing orchestra. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, this this does seem like a movie kind of like house that I feel like in a theater like an Alamo draft house could show on, ha- you know, every October and people would just eat it up. So, well, aren't some of us lucky to have an Alamo draft house in our town? <laughs> Did you have one some of us? I did. I, I went to it for the first time last night, actually. And it, it's a new one. Like, it's pretty new. So it was nice. Well, aren't we the lucky ones? <laughs> I went I went to Alamo two weeks ago <laughs> by me. And it was the first time they didn't open. They had they were closed up until two weeks ago from the pandemic. So it was just like crazy. I saw Candyman there, but I didn't know oh. there was one by you. Yeah, there's actually two. This one is the newer one. There's one like downtown that's a little bit older. So, and the ones here just opened up pretty recently too. So, Christian, you have to visit one of us to come see it. Yeah, because ours <laughs> was like, eh, we have a lot of issues going on behind the scenes. So, we're just going to close. Yeah. And that's yeah. really sad. They are getting bought by B&B, right? So, at least there'll be yeah. a theater there, but it won't be Alamo. So, yeah. They have the best pizza there. It is very good. <laughs> I'll have a slice for you, Christian. <laughs> Perfect. Any other thoughts on Suspiria before we move on to our last film here? 
you can easily find it on YouTube. Yes, you can. All right. Well, our next film is one that I've been a little bit nervous about just because I don't, I've been struggling with how to explain the plot for this one. But this film is Robert Altman's Three Women. Um, it stars Sissy Spacek as Pinky, who is this young woman who is just starting a job at a health spa for elderly folks in um, this like California desert town. Um, we don't really know a whole lot about her. It just kind of starts there. We know that she started this new job. Um, she seems pretty new to the area. And she meets this person named Millie, who's played by, um, oh my God, Shelly Duvall. Duvall. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was too worried about the plot. Um, so yeah, Sissy Spacek, Shelly Duvall. And, you know, they form a connection. Um, Millie, you know, is kind of the one who is training Pinky throughout this process. But Pinky just becomes pretty much obsessed with Millie. Um, when Millie is gone for a few days, Pinky is like very concerned and whatnot. And kind of by happenstance, um, Pinky moves in with Millie and they become roommates at her apartment where we start to learn a little bit about the two of them. Pinky is very, very quiet, very shy, um, kind of has this sense of extreme, almost like religious morals about her. Whereas Millie at least tries to be very outgoing, um, more promiscuous and you know, Millie kind of lets on that she has all these friends, but really we kind of learn that, you know, people don't really, you know, uh, gravitate towards Millie. They're more so annoyed by her, but she is very outgoing. We kind of experience the kind of ups and downs of their relationship. And it kind of comes to a head when things start to become really difficult between the two of them. And things happen from there that I don't really want to explain because that I feel like that would spoil it and it's kind of hard to explain it anyway. So um, it's definitely a, it, it's an interesting movie. I, I don't know how to put it. It's something that I think is kind of unique. Um, it doesn't have some of Altman's normal trademarks. There's not a whole lot of scenes of people like talk, talking over each other and overlapping dialogue. Most of it is focused on the two characters and other supporting characters that come in and out, including um, the character who the who dates who lives with the person who owns their complex, um, and her name is Willie, and so she's played by Janice Rule, and she is another quiet person. She kind of paints things throughout and throughout the complex and all over these very interesting kind of creepy designs, um, and she's pregnant with um the the landlord's child, and so. She is the third woman in all of this. I'm not going to go into how she factors into everything because that kind of comes up more towards the end, but it kind of goes into the, the relationship of these three. It really has a lot to say about identities in a very kind of interesting and bizarre fashion. I was really into it. I was kind of just fascinated by it the entire time. I think Duvall and Spacek are both outstanding here. Um, it almost like a, a, Thelma and Louise situation where I don't even, I, I don't even really know which one I like more sometimes because I think they just really bounce off each other and they both have really interesting thing to do. And so their connection, their performances and their characters, I think are the biggest reason to watch. And for this film in particular, that's kind of all we need because that's kind of what it centers around. So I'm really interested to hear what you all thought about this one. Cause it is a very interesting movie and in some ways just unlike what I've seen from Altman before. I don't, I don't know. 
<laughs> I, I mean, there were parts of it that the beginning was dragged a little bit too much for me. Um, I was not interested in either of the characters. I was like, okay, so I don't like Sissy. I don't like Pinky. I don't really like Millie either. Their chemistry to me seemed a little odd in the beginning, but but by the second half, I really enjoyed it. I liked the twists and turns that it started taking. It built, it grew. I didn't need that many shots of the paintings. I get it. Mm. She's painting. I get it. The painting, whatever. She's pregnant in the paintings. I don't give a shit. I don't need to see it like 30 times. I think we could have like lost a lot of time like that. Um, the things I did like about it were that they were the only people for each other. Like it was almost as if everybody else in the world didn't exist. Like Millie would talk to people or talk to her coworkers, but but they would never hear her. They would just pass right over her. So she finds this one person, Pinky, who actually cares about her. Um, but I don't care about Pinky. I'm like I'm just not. I don't care. Like as a character, I'm not that interested in her. You know that there's a point where like when she's, you know, spoiler alert, has this accident. And Millie's all of a sudden like the person to take care of her. I, I kind of don't understand why that's happening because to me, the relationship didn't build in a way where that would seem likely. So the foundation was kind of weak for me to like build, to, to, to care about the characters and to build the relationships off of them. But the second half moved really quickly and seemed way more realistic. Um, that's just, those are my initial impressions. So um, as we know, like Robert Altman is a hit or miss for me and like a Same. love meh type because Gosford Park. <laughs> yeah. Nashville, yeah. Um, this, I really liked it though. Like I was not expecting to like it a lot. And it's probably because I was assuming it was going to have that back and forth behind you dialogue that Altman is known for. I asked Brett beforehand. He said, no, I was like, okay, I'm interested still. Um, watched it. I really did like Shelley Duvall in this as Millie. I liked Sissy Spacek in this, although it's interesting to think that the three movies I've seen of her from the 70s, this, Badlands, and Carrie, mm -hmm. she is somewhat of the same character, that mm -hmm. sort of quiet, mousy type woman. Obviously with Carrie, she has, you know, her own stuff happening there but this watch it almost like in a horror aspect of it of like a single white female situation like is pinky obviously if she wanted to become millie what does she see in this woman so much that she's so quote quote obsessed with her and then look at like millie's character and she's a sad woman like i hated seeing her own apartment complex people sort of diss on her and She's the weird outcast person. And Shelly Duvall is so great. And I love her so much. But no, I really like this movie. I did like the second half, I think, um, a lot more post-accident, I guess mm -hmm. you would, would call it. But uh, no, I'm just glad I finally got to watch this because I've been wanting to watch this for years and years. And I don't know what was stopping me, but I'm glad it was picked because I finally got to see it. And I liked it. I'm actually very much surprised how much I did like it. Yeah, I've also wanted to see it for a long time because Duvall received um, the Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival for this, which is really cool. And I was really interested to see her performance. But I think, yeah, I would agree with both of you. I think the second half is stronger than the first. That's probably a little bit of why I, 
I really like it, but I don't know if I quite love it. This is another one that I'm I'm just gonna have to rewatch at some point. Um, and it's one I could see myself rewatching soon if I find the extra time. I won't, but um, I don't know. It, it's just very fascinating. It's one of those movies where I always struggle when I feel the need to do this, but I did like I went online and read up on it and uh, like the themes and stuff afterwards because a lot of it did click for me but there are a few things that I want to see some interpretations of and there's some really interesting stuff out there about what's going on here and brief spoiler alert if you want to turn off for like the next couple seconds I'm not the same thing about the plot but I would say two things one dreaming and dreams and nightmares are seems to be a big theme in a lot of movies from this year like with this one in house and Eraserhead. um the other thing I'm going to say is this would make a really good double feature with Persona because uh, there are a lot of similarities with that as well and the two women there. So, and I love Persona. So I think that's another reason why it kind of clicked with me. I think I might've also liked this too, because I'm just used to seeing the Altman stuff when he has the ensemble cast mm-hmm. with it. And this is just mostly the two, two and a half, three women involved in it all. It's a very, very tight cast. It's not, you have to focus on everybody. You don't have to get to know that many people. And, you know. Right. Although the ensemble stuff is obviously great when it's great. Yeah. And I haven't seen all of Altman's filmography, but really the only one that I, of his, that I could really compare to this is like McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And even that one is very different. It's only similar in that it kind of centers on two characters. So it's interesting in that way too. I really like the character of Edgar. I love to hate him. I think he did such a great job as a villain um, because every time he was on screen, I was like, this fucking guy. Like, it was just, he had this like presence about him um, where he was like one of the only, because to me, like, the, maybe it was hard for me to relate because both uh, Millie and Pinky were sort of like unpredictable characters. I didn't know where they were going at any given moment. Um, And Edgar was predictable. He was sort of, he had this like um, consistency to him that you couldn't rely on him. And so in in a weird way, felt like he was at least like the grounding character where he may be a bad person, but at least I know where his intentions are at every moment. Whereas like Pinky will be happy one minute and upset because for seemingly no reason, you know, which I guess, I mean, it's, it's an interesting character study for sure. Um, yeah. But the movie isn't predictable. I like three or four times while I was watching it was like, oh, I think this is going to happen. And it didn't. Something else totally different happened. So I have to give it credit for that because, uh, I was actually watching this with my girlfriend and we were both sitting watching and we were both saying, okay, I think, and she, and we were both like, wow, we didn't see that one coming or okay. Didn't say, and uh, by the end of it, I was invested in the characters, which is odd yeah. because I wasn't attached necessarily in uh, through the first half. Um, I did like, I still don't think I really understand the ending though. Like, I'm going to be honest. I mean, I understand what happens, but like, can we talk about that spoiler alert thing? I'm down to, yeah. The movie's been out for this long. Yeah. Why not? Okay. So obviously Willie kills Edgar, but like, 
So they're all just living with each other. Like she's basically Millie's become Sissy Spacek's Sissy Spacek's mom, Pinky's mom. Yeah, and I'm still not 100% on it either. This is the area that I had to like read up on and see like different interpretations. But the one that I saw that I kind of like, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess it up. But basically, that's it's the ending is less so of a reality, so much more as like a representation of these three women through the lifespan, and like these three women are actually all one. And so that kind of made sense to me where like Pinky's the more adolescent-like, naive, younger. Millie's the more, you know, becomes more in tune with herself, middle, you know, kind of early adult years. And then Willie is, you know, up older and they, they kind of represent those three separately at the end. But at, overall, it's part of the same whole. And that's where I think the dreaming comes in. So like they, it's almost like as if they were dreaming, they were all playing these characters um, or yeah, it's confusing as hell. And, that, and that's why, like I, I said, I, I recommend like for anybody out there, like just read up on it if you want to, obviously. And, and each interpretation, it could be completely off base, but that's why like, and even still, that's why I'm not fully, I really like the movie, but I'm not. I don't love it, love it like some others just because of that. Like I, I read that and I still like trying to interpret it and I'm still not completely there with how I feel about it. So. Because it's like, I understand that like these traumatic things happen to Pinky and to Millie over the course of the story that may have them like, they're just, I understand that I guess the concept is that they're always switching roles. Um, but I would never know that without you saying it. Like, it's okay, that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah. That they're like, they're supposed to be like one person. But, and I guess that's the, the movie isn't supposed to state that obviously. It's not like some big, whatever. But I would never know that, you know? And, and yeah. I think that's kind of a flaw. Yeah. And there are some things where I still, I still don't know because I felt differently watching it. Like when the, after the accident happens, it, it seems like Pinky's becoming more like Millie and Millie's becoming more like Pinky. But it's like, is that what's going on? Or is it that Pinky's becoming more like Millie and aging into that and Millie's becoming more like Willie, you know, which is kind of hard to determine as well because Willie's not a huge factor in this movie for a lot of it. I mean, she's kind of a background character for a lot of it. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic as well. Christian, any thoughts? I just watch the movie. <laughs> I don't know. It is a very dreamy type. I again watch it. Maybe I don't know. Watch it. Maybe a horror type atmosphere of it all, where all these women are changing and morphing into one another. But it's more so the persona and the reality of them all. Yeah, it's it's weird. I I want to find a better term for it, but it is a strange narrative yeah. that I'm still just unsure of and sometimes it, i like that i like the little bit of ambiguity but it definitely doesn't lead you into thinking about the ambiguity and then it's like because it's it's a pretty consistent movie mm -hmm. and then post accidents like all right i'm gonna make you all think now right yeah yeah that's exactly right yeah very sudden i i think if anything it's intriguing uh hopefully our discussion has definitely sparked some intrigue but i also um not to move away from that, but the um, the Edgar character you mentioned, Anthony Robert 
Fortier, Fortier. I'm not sure his name's pronounced. I must not have been. He doesn't have a photo on IMDb, but like his career is interesting because started out as an uncredited extra on Singing in the Rain, and did mostly TV work after that. But him and Altman must have been buds because he was in at least three that I can see Altman movies. He was in McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Popeye as well. So he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, there you go. Interesting. Yeah. Three women. If you check it out, like, I don't know, reach out to us on Twitter and see if you have any other interpretations because this is a very interesting movie that uh, you might have to sit with. So any further thoughts on this one? Shelley Duvall, underrated. Still underrated. She is, I, I think as last I know, she's doing okay. Yeah. But nobody gives her enough credit for a lot of the acting that she does. Yeah. And yeah, this is really also our second movie of hers from 77 because she is briefly in Annie Hall. She is. Oh, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our final film to discuss. And so now we'll move on to our list of honorable or dishonorable mentions from this year. Not as long as um, a lot of other years, um, but we do have quite a bit here to go through. And once again, if anybody has any quick thoughts about these, feel free to share. Starting at the top, this sounds very intriguing. First one here is Demon Seed. Yes. All right. So y'all remember the Disney Channel original movie Smart House? Yes. Okay. Now take Smart House, put it with evil technology and technology that wants to impregnate a woman. Demon Seed. Okay. Uh, Next one here is Desperate Living. John Waters, an anti-fascist type movie. It's actually pretty funny. So, yeah. Divine's not in it, though. But Mm. don't don't lead that astray. It's uh, Edith Massey, who I know Brett really likes. Yes. Yeah, she's in it. She's great. Nice. Uh, next one is Delightful Christmas Short, Edmund Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which I watched for the first time a couple years ago. It's wonderful. Because of me. Yes, of course. Of, of course. <laughs> Jim Henson, of course, it's you. Uh, next one. This might be the movie that Christian and I disagree on more than just about any other. I, I don't know if you've seen it, Anthony. I'm interested to hear if you have. But I haven't, no. David Lynch's Eraserhead. I love it. it I hate it. I I was just astounded by it. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, we very much disagree on that one. People probably know my opinion of David Lynch. So yeah, Christian is going to hate some of my personal words. Just oh, oh yeah. my god. Uh, next one we have for the love of Benji. 1974's Benji is probably one of the greatest films ever made. The sequel is fine. He gets lost in Greece, and Benji is a dog. <laughs> so. Did you just say that it's one one of the best greatest films <laughs> ever made? Is yes, this I movie did. about the dog? <laughs> Benji, the first Benji from 1974 is one of the greatest, funnest family films ever made. Wow. All and right. the score, the score in Benji slaps. When we get to 1974, <laughs> when we get to 1974, it's We're watching it. Pick. We're watching <laughs> it. It's the only person to ever say that sentence. I love it. <laughs> Uh, one that I'm a bit surprised Christian didn't pick to watch this time is Mel Brooks' High Anxiety. I thought about it so much. For, it's so good. It's one of my faves. But if you like Hitchcock, it's it's basically, hey, I love Hitchcock. Here's why in Mel Brooks style. <laughs> yeah. 
I enjoyed it. Not as much as Christian, but it was funny. Because Brad doesn't have a heart. I, yeah. I, I think it's actually one of his weaker films. And I love Hitchcock and I love Mel Brooks. It's just like, oh, like always, Madeline Kahn for me is like the strongest part. Uh, yeah. Cloris Leachman is the strongest part too. It's been a while, but yeah. Um, I do love the scene in that where he's giving the lecture and the two little girls show up and he's trying to find different words to say instead of the more inappropriate terms. That's hilarious. Um, next we have the Hills have eyes. Um, it's, I, I think it's, it, I think it's fine. I, I don't remember it at all, except for it's like grotesque. But... Yeah, I like it more than Last House on the Left. I will say that. I do too. I like it more than Last House on the Left, yes. Yeah. Uh, next one, we have an Australian film from Peter Ware, The Last Wave, which for me contends with The Turning Point as my least favorite film I've seen from this year. Was not a big fan, but there is a really great performance in it. Um, I can't remember his name, but um, there is a great performance there. Not the lead guy. But overall, it's not great. Brett and I had a professor who was obsessed with Peter Weir. And we talked yeah. about this. He, we would, did like three classes worth of Australian cinema solely focused on like Peter Weir. Yeah, it was wild. Uh, next, we have A Little Night Music. Uh, it's a the Sondheim musical. And it also won an Oscar, I guess, for best score adaptation because that was a thing. But it's fine. I like it. If you want to hear Elizabeth Taylor sing, she can decently sing let's just say that all right next we have i would say a very hard to find film and a controversial film looking for mr goodbar uh, another wonderful diane keaton performance from that year and then next we have the mini adventures of winnie the pooh one of disney's greatest animated features did not realize it came out this year yeah, I mean, I grew up with it as a kid, so a special place in my heart. Nice. This was the year for nice Christmas shorts. Next, we have Nestor, the long-eared Christmas donkey, which was a Rankin-Bass, I'm pretty sure, right? It's so yeah. good. I cry every time. That's it's such sweet. a funny title. Yeah, He's a long-eared donkey who <laughs> takes Mary and Joseph to the inn. But, but funnier than that is that his name is Nestor. Nestor. <laughs> <laughs> it's sweet. Uh, next we have, once again, we already talked a little bit about this one, New York, New York. I think Liza's great in it, but uh, definitely one of the weaker Scorsese's for me. You get like one of the most iconic songs ever written. Yeah. Like ever. Never saw it. It's, it's, it's long too. I, I, I don't know. I like it very mildly but uh next we have simply oh god it's uh uh my god what's his name i can't george burns george burns thank you i want to say burt reynolds and john denver and think of it as a not as funny bruce almighty Mm, okay got it next we have pete's dragon haven't seen this one Oh, really? Oh, okay. I've I've seen the remake. Okay, I've seen it. I don't know. It's it's nice. It blends the live action and the animation. So Mm. next we have Rabid. Oh, yes. David Cronenberg. It's so good. Um, Definitely check it out if you want a spooky movie because it's uh, it's scary and it's really. Yeah. 
Nice. Mm, I'll check it out. Next, we have Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. Okay, look. <laughs> I really like this movie. It's cute. All right. The peanuts go to camp. Okay. Next, we have The Rescuers. Not one of my favorite Disney animated films, I will say, but it has its moments. It's cute. I it's like cute. it a lot. Yeah. Uh, next, we have actually a, a TV miniseries mini that came out this year, which I haven't seen, but very influential. It's Roots. It's very, very good. And I watched it all in like a day, which is saying something because it's very long. Interesting. It's great. Yeah. I didn't realize it came out this year, though. Nice. And it was when we say it was like a massive success, it was massive. Like everybody was watching it. And I guess that um, in the Northeast, there was a snowstorm on the night it premiered. So everybody was home. So it brought in a lot of viewers that way too. Yeah. Interesting. Next we have Saturday Night Fever, famously like one of Gene Siskel's favorite movies ever. Oh my God, yes. Weird to me, but yeah, I, I don't know. He was like obsessed with this movie. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember it. I don't really want to remember it, but it also gave us one of the most iconic movie songs. It did. That I, might be one of the most iconic films of the 70s. Oh yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I mean, it's it's one that like I grew up knowing about. Um, obviously, John Travolta did, did Grease a year later. So I think just some of the images from it at the very least. And it's also interesting history because like it was edited down to like a PG movie. And I think that's what a lot of people grew up with. And it left out some very interesting stuff. And so I, I did not watch the PG version. Um, there's There's some heavy stuff in that movie, but... Uh, our final one here that we have is the Sentinel. Did you watch it? I didn't get to it. I didn't get a chance. Okay, I really I, wanted to. It's it's so good. Yeah, I really liked it. Where is and it? Again, if you want a good, well, I had to get it on interlibrary loan. But if you want a good Halloween scary movie coming up, definitely watch the Sentinel. Basically, think um, Rosemary's Baby. But mm. without the baby, just the apartment. Cool. Oh. Yeah. Very nice. Awesome. Well, that is the end of our honorable or dishonorable mentions. And so now we will go into one of our favorite segments, as always, our personal awards for this year. And so um, I'll go ahead and I'll start us off this time. We're going to start with best adapted screenplay going up from five to one. This one I had some trouble filling. There actually weren't a ton this year that I was big on, but um, at five, I have Saturday Night Fever, four, The Rescuers, three, Julia, two, Suspiria, and one, I have Looking for Mr. Goodbart. And honestly, I don't love any of those, but I, I'm a completionist. I had to fill it. So, uh, Anthony, what do you got here? I'm not a completionist. And I only saw two. So at number two, Julia. Not saying much. <laughs> at number one, Suspiria. There you go. Christian, what do you got? Uh, let me just toggle some things here. Okay, sorry. I almost had the Benji movie, but... Um, 
So I number five, Julia. Number four, Suspiria. Number three, Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. Because technically, if you're adapting from previously used material, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, number two, The Rescuers, and my number one was The Sentinel because I think it is based on a book. So mm. nice. All right. So moving on to best original screenplay, which was much better for me. Um, I have number five, The Goodbye Girl. Number four, Star Wars. Number three, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Number two, Three Women. And number one, I have Best Picture winner, Annie Hall. Anthony, Um, what do you got? I have number five, Star Wars. Number four, Three Women. Number three, A Special Day. Number two, Goodbye Girl. And number one, Annie Hall. All right. All right. I have number five, Star Wars. At number four, I wasn't sure if this is adapted or original. I'm just going to say it is original, but high anxiety mm-hmm. because technically it's more of a homage to anything. Yeah. Um, at number three, three women, number two, the goodbye girl and Annie Hall as number one. All right. We agree there. Moving on to our acting categories. I will take us away with best supporting performance. Um, I've got 10 here and number 10, I have Harvey Corman for high anxiety. Really liked him in that. Uh, number nine, I have Alita Valley for Suspiria. Number eight, my good performance from a bad movie, David Gopalil for The Last Wave. Um, he plays like the main indigenous character in that movie and he's actually really good. Number seven, I have Carrie Fisher for Star Wars. Number six, I have Yoko Minamita for House. Number five, I have Quinn Cummings for The Goodbye Girl. Number four, I have Alec Guinness for Star Wars. Number three, Vanessa Redgrave for Julia. Number two, Harrison Ford for Star Wars. And number one, I'm going with the comedy one. I'm going with Jackie Gleason in Smokey and the Bandit. And for uh, number 10, I have Vanessa Redgrave, Julia. Nine, Carrie Fisher for Star Wars. Eight, Alita, uh, Alita Valley for Suspiria. Number seven, Jason Robards for Julia, just because I love Jason Robards. Uh, number six, Jerry Reed from Smokey and the Bandit. Number five, Harrison Ford from Star Wars. Number four, Flavio Bucci, the blind man in Suspiria. Uh, Number three, Robert Fortier for Three Women. Number two, Quinn Cummings, uh, the goodbye girl. And number one, Jackie Gleason, Smokey and the Bandit. Nice. I kind of thought I might be the only one there, so I'm glad it wasn't. (laughs) Christian, what do you got? All right. Um, I only have one, actually. And it is the baby from Eraserhead. <laughs> Thank you. I uh, name him Chuck. All right. Um, so no, my number 10 is Quinn Cummings from The Goodbye Girl. Number nine, Harvey Corman for High Anxiety. Number eight is Jean Hill from Desperate Living. She is super funny in that. She has a very funny line of, ain't no man going to see my tampons or something like that. <laughs> Ask Zay, they know it better than I do. Uh, number 10987 is Harrison Ford, six, Carrie Fisher. 109876, five. Okay, I don't have these numbered. Five, Vanessa Redgrave for Julia. Four, Cloris Leachman for High Anxiety. Two, Alec Guinness for Star Wars. Uh, or three, Alec Guinness for Star Wars. Two is Francois Truffaut for mm-hmm. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And oh my God, I cannot believe it. But my, my number one is also Jackie Gleason. Nice. <laughs> I honestly was not expecting that. I, I don't know why, but yeah. Well, for, awesome. the long, for the longest time before ever seeing it, it has been Francois Truffaut. So 
Yeah. But then I saw him like, damn, this is funny. Yeah. He's hilarious in that movie. All right. Going on to best lead performance. I have 10 here once again. Um, number 10, like I said, I did like their performances. So I went with Marcelo Mastroianni in a special day. Number nine, I went with Richard Dreyfus, and I went with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Number eight, Marsha Mason from The Goodbye Girl. Number seven, I went with Woody Allen from Annie Hall. Number six, I have Liza Minnelli for New York, New York. Number five, I have Paul Newman for Slapshot. Underrated performance, but he's awesome in that movie. So that's, that's why I forgot to put, I forgot to put that on the list. But yeah, uh, Slapshot, that's, it's, it's a good movie worth checking out. Uh, number four, I have Sissy Spacek for three women. Number three, I have Shelley Duvall for three women. And number two, I have Diane Keaton for looking for Mr. Goodbar. Number one, I have Diane Keaton once again for Annie Hall. I think she gave the two best performances of 1977. So that's what I've got. Wow. Number 10, I have uh, Jane Fonda for Julia. Number nine, Mark Hamill, Star Wars. Eight, Marsha Mason, The Goodbye Girl. Seven, Marcello Mastriani, Special Day. Six, Woody Allen for Annie Hall. Five, Burt Reynolds, Smokey and the Bandit. Number four, Richard Dreyfuss for The Goodbye Girl. Number three, Sophia Loren for A Special Day. Number two, Shelley Duvall, Three Women. And number one, Diane Key and Annie Hall. All right, I have number 10, Madeline Kahn for High Anxiety. Number nine, Richard Dreyfuss for Close Encounters. Eight, Mark Hamill, Star Wars. Seven, Mel Brooks for High Anxiety. Six, I really should have labeled these. <laughs> Six, Sissy Spacek for Three Women. Four, five, Jane Fonda for Julia. Four, Richard Dreyfuss for The Goodbye Girl. Three, Shelley Duvall for Three Women. Two, Woody Allen for Annie Hall. And Diane Keaton. And the titular role of Annie Hall. Nice. A lot of agreement going on here. Um, I will say there will not be agreements with the next category. <laughs> so uh, best director is our next one. This was very tough. There were some that I really hated to leave off, but at number five, I have Steven Spielberg for close encounters. <laughs> Sorry, Christian. Number four, Robert Altman for three women. Number three, based on the work alone, can't stand the man, but I have Woody Allen for Annie Hall. Number two, I have George Lucas for Star Wars. And number one, I have David Lynch for Eraserhead. <laughs> and I'm surprised Christian is still here. <laughs> Love to work there. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Wait, I'm waiting for Christian. It looks like he's... No, <laughs> nothing? Okay, he's saving it. Okay. Um, I also have Spielberg at five for Close Encounters. Uh, number four, Ettore Scola for A Special Day. Three, I'm going to butcher this. Nobiku Obayashi for House. Number two, Dario Argento for Suspiria. And number one, Woody Allen, Annie Hall. All right. So mine is the ultimate superior list here. So. And number five, Mel Brooks for High Anxiety. Number four, Woody Allen for Annie Hall. Number three, Robert Altman for Three Women. Two, George Lucas for Star Wars. And the winner... Steven Spielberg for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm. Mm. 
All right. Maybe All we right. should have picked. Maybe somebody should have picked a racer head so we could have <laughs> dove into it. it I actually thought head. about it. I thought about it, but no, uh, no, I, I kind of thought you might pick Spielberg and I hated leaving off Obayashi for house. That's on a different day. He might take Spielberg's spot. Sorry, Christian, but <laughs> all right, all right. It's like, it, I, i'm thinking too like uh let's see because we've done mm, one second this is like my fourth spielberg win yeah yeah because this jaws wins. raiders and color purple no the, uh, oh no that's right we both yeah. i always say that we both said kurosawa yeah yeah and uh schindler's list yeah definitely all right well, moving on to our final, our biggest category here with Best Picture, going up from 10 to 1, I have at number 10, Julia, number 9, Slapshot, number 8, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, number 7, House, number 6, Suspiria, number 5, Three Women, number 4, Close Encounters, number 3, Eraserhead, number 2, Annie Hall, and number 1, Star Wars. Number 10, I have Julia. Number nine, Three Women. Number eight, Smokey and the Bandit. Number seven, Close Encounters. Number six, Special Day. Five, Star Wars. Four, House. Three, Suspiria. I like the horror films. I just, they're always above the sci fi for me. Uh, two, <laughs> two, The Goodbye Girl. For a second, I thought it said Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and I was like, I didn't see that film. <laughs> uh and number one annie hall all right uh number 10 i have three women number nine the sentinel number eight rabid like those two movies sentinel rabid go watch number seven the rescuers because i do like that movie a lot number six Smokey and the bandit number five the many adventures of winnie the pooh which i also just want to comment it is three previously already made short films strung into one cohesive narrative whatever number four high anxiety number three close encounters number two annie hall and my winner is star wars yeah brett's right. like Ooh, not close encounters is number I, one i i was i really thought it was going to be close encounters so for the next one we do for the next one we do i want to tell you all what my split is because i tend to split a lot on director and picture I don't have I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I do it a lot. I realize I do too. So makes sense. All right. Well, there you have it. I, I think one thing we all agree on is that the Academy actually did a pretty good job, well, to a degree, with their two biggest nominated films of the year, Annie Hall and Star Wars. We all um, had Annie Hall near the top and Star Wars in the top five. So um, thanks as always for listening and tuning into this episode. Um, as always rate, review, subscribe, wherever you listen, Apple podcasts, we're pretty much everywhere that is podcast these days. Um, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and letterboxd. Um, and thanks to Joshua Arnoldi as always for doing our theme music for the podcast. And Anthony, Anthony, thank you for joining us. Once again, this was a lot of fun. Appreciate having you on and going through these with us. Any final thoughts from you or anything else to plug that you want to mention? Uh, nothing in particular. I always love being on here with you guys and chatting about these films. I hope to look forward to another good year uh, where we can do something. I love the horror films. If we could sort of factor those in, if there's anything else where you need some Italian representation, Christian, I can be your person. 
And thank you both for having me. Absolutely. Christian, any final thoughts from you? Um, no, I did watch. I don't know if I can say this. Can I say this about Anthony's thing? Sure. Okay. I watched, he, he shared with us, um, his short film and it's, is it not out yet? It's, um, going to be submitted to Sundance. Okay. So today it's going to be submitted to Sundance the day of this recording. It hopefully it gets in. It definitely should. It's really good. And it's a really interesting topic. I must say that, but yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And give us the title of it. Uh, the, ten- the title is Bendix Sight Unseen. It's about a diner uh, in the town over. Uh, it's been around forever, a 1940s style diner that's owned by a uh, blind man who's also the waiter there. Uh, him and his three sons work at the diner. And so it's about him trying to navigate through life with this disability and at the same time being able to provide for his family. Yeah, and it's and it's actually really really good. And honestly, uh, hopefully Sundance does their online format this year too. If it gets through, which it probably and hopefully will, I'm gonna scream because it's like I know somebody <laughs> making a film at Sundance. Holy shit! If I get in, I'm gonna scream too. Right, <laughs> definitely should. No, yeah, I echo everything Christian said. I watched it today, and it is it's it's an astounding story. It's and that it's really well shot as well. Uh, just a fantastic job with that, and so. I'm really yeah, looking forward to hearing what you hear from Sundance and hoping it gets in and um, looking forward to others getting to see it in the future. So thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thanks as always for listening. We will be back soon with our next year, which is uh, the third Academy Awards is split between 1929 and 1930. So we're going way back. And so be sure to tune in then. See you.